Uh, the Old Testament reading is from Isaiah chapter 49, verses 5 and 6. And now the Lord says, He who formed me in the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him and to gather Israel to himself, for I am honoured in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has been my strength. He says, It's too small a thing for you to be my servant, to restore the tribes of Jacob and to bring back those of Israel I've kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. The New Testament reading is from Galatians 1, starting at verse 11. I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel I preached is not of human origin. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God, and trying to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. But when God, who set me apart from my mother's womb and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, my immediate response was not to consult any human being. I did not go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was, but I went into Arabia. Later, I returned to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Kephas and stayed with him 15 days. I saw none of the other apostles, only James, the Lord's brother. I assure you before God that what I'm writing to you is no lie. Then I went to Syria and Cilicia. I was personally unknown to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only heard the report. The man who formerly persecuted us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they praised God because of me. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem. This time with Barnabas, I took Titus along also. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. In a park near where I live, there's a memorial commemorating the late Israeli Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin. Rabin won the Nobel Peace Prize for his part in working out peace agreements with the Palestinians and the Jordanians. But he was assassinated in November 1995 by one Yigal Amir, a Jewish Torah student who claimed that what he did was in accord with Jewish law. The actions of that young man going to extreme lengths, even violence, against those who would, in his mind at least, compromise Israel's national identity and security remind me of the figure of today's stop in God's mega-story. Saul of Tarsus, Paul the Apostle, St. Paul, our stop eight. Before he met the risen Jesus, Paul was in his day just like Yiga Amir, a young man full of zeal, prepared to go any lengths, even to the point of violence, to purify God's people, Israel, against compromise and danger. When he was confronted by the risen Jesus, 
Everything changed, except the zeal. I'll come back to Paul and what happened in just a moment. But first, let me draw attention to a unique feature of the early Christian movement. The unique feature is it had a mission to everybody. As strange as it may seem to us, no religion in the ancient world had any sense of mission, with the exception of some Jews. As one historian put it, no pagan seriously dreamed of bringing all humankind to give worship in one body to the one deity. In contrast, the early Christian movement actively envisaged its target audience to be anyone or everyone. And most significantly, although we tend to take this for granted, to pagans as well as Israelites, that is, to Gentiles as well as to Jews, everybody. To add to the, problem, to the puzzle, except for the first stop on creation, none of our stops so far in the God mega, God's mega story has had a focus on all people either. Though Abraham is promised that, quote, all the nations of the earth will be blessed through you, unquote, the attention is really very much only on the line of his own family. With Moses, Joshua, David and the exile, it's all about the nation Israel, with whom the Lord God made a covenant to be their God and they his people. The others are only on the sidelines. Even Jesus' ministry was, despite what we may think, overwhelmingly focused on Israel. To the extent that in Matthew 10, verse 5, we hear Jesus even telling the twelve, who he sends out to proclaim that the kingdom of God is near, quote, do not go among the Gentiles or enter any town of the Samaritans, go rather to the lost sheep of Israel, unquote. And yet, we have a universal mission to all the nations and all peoples. What happened? The resurrection of Jesus from the dead is what happened. The resurrection exalted Jesus as the universal Lord of all. But it was also the risen Jesus who inaugurated the mission to all. He commanded it. At the end of the Gospel of Luke, it's, we hear the risen Jesus speak. Repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name of the Messiah to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. Luke 24, 46. The end of the Gospel of Matthew, the risen Jesus speaks. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations. Matthew 28, 19. And in John, the risen Jesus speaks. As the Father has sent me, so I'm sending you. John 20, 21. It's also reported by Peter in another incident in Acts 10. Here's the thing. The early Christian mission to all was because the risen Jesus had commanded it. It wasn't something the early Christians decided of their own back to do. No, it was directly from Jesus. The risen Jesus. And yet there's one more. One last appearance of the risen Jesus commanding a mission to all. This appearance was so out of step that the man who received it said it was as to one untimely born. The man was Saul of Tarsus, or to use his preferred Roman name, Paul. The Apostle Paul, our stop today. 
Paul was quite a character. Just last week, Greg Sheridan, the Australian's foreign editor, released a book called Christians, The Urgent Case for Jesus in Our World, in which he writes this, I quote, Saul of Tarsus, known to history as Paul the Apostle, was a difficult, stubborn, brilliant, energetic, passionate, obsessive, courageous, cosmopolitan, intellectual, practical, confronting, compassionate, in-your-face, ever-helpful, blunt, forgiving, demanding, generous and loving man. He was also perhaps one of the half-dozen most influential figures in human history. Paul's radical change in the road to Damascus from persecutor of Christians to Christian believer is the most significant religious conversion in history. End of quote. The most significant religious conversion in history? Let's see. Let me start with the Paul whom Jesus met. The Paul that Jesus confronted was an active and violent opponent of Jesus. This wasn't because Paul was opposed to God. In fact, rather, because of his commitment to God. As I said at the start, Paul, the Paul to whom the risen Jesus appeared was a young man full of zeal, a word he liked to use of himself. Zeal, prepared to go to any lengths, even to the point of violence, to purify God's people Israel against compromise and danger. You could call him a devout extremist for the Lord God of Israel. Actually, he reminds me a little bit of the 8th century BC prophet Elijah in his violent campaign against the prophets of Baal. Not a bad thing in itself. So with filthy idolatry all around and Israel under constant pressure to compromise, Paul openly embraced what one writer has called, quote, the toxic combination of serious prayer and, where necessary, serious violence designed to purge the Jewish world of blasphemous wickedness, unquote. There was one particular form of blasphemous wickedness which caught his attention. The scandalous notion that some of his fellow Jews were now holding and propagating that a crucified man had been raised from the dead as Israel's long-awaited Messiah. Paul's zeal for God led him to persecute these Jesus-believing Jews wherever he found them. He even got authority to hunt them down in the Syrian city of Damascus. And that's when it happened. On the way to Damascus, it all changed. He was confronted by an appearance of the risen Lord Jesus in all his shining glory. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He demanded. Who are you, Lord? Paul responded, plainly understanding that what he was seeing was a heavenly vision from God. The answer was earth-shaking. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. And then, the risen Jesus commissioned Paul to proclaim him among the Gentiles. Suddenly, Paul's whole world was turned upside down. <coughs> it must have shocked him to the core. Jesus of Nazareth? The man who was crucified? 
the one who spoke against the temple, the blasphemer, that man, risen from the dead, at the right hand of God? Am I to proclaim him among the Gentiles? <laughs> By the way, I don't think we can call this event accurately, as many do, the conversion of Paul, as though he changed from one religion to another. <coughs> as he says in Acts about himself, that he'd all, he lived all his life, quote, with a clear conscience towards God. No, Paul treasured the scriptures. He looked for the redemption of Israel. He longed for the coming of Israel's Messiah. He just hadn't expected he might look like the crucified Jesus. No, he didn't change religions. Rather, he was confronted by the fulfilment and climax of the story of Israel in a way that was totally unexpected and which therefore changed everything. And then he was enlisted in proclaiming this to the whole world. Paul writes that after this confrontation, he went straight away down to Arabia, down in the south. Interestingly, that's where Mount Sinai is. It was Paul doing what the prophet Elijah had dared done after his confrontation with the prophets of Baal? Was Paul doing business with God, reorienting himself after such a revolutionary revelation? By the way, we learned this from Acts, from Galatians rather. Acts doesn't mention it. In fact, the Acts of the Apostles gives us very little about the first 13 years of Paul's life after his confrontation with the risen Jesus. Just one of those things. Now, there's so much you can say about Paul, but let me restrict myself simply to the impact of that meeting of the risen Jesus on three aspects and areas of his life and ministry. One, about Jesus. Two, about the people of God. And three, about the mission to all. First, about Jesus. Paul was faced with a complete re-evaluation of Jesus of Nazareth. Up to that time, he had been convinced that Jesus was a shameful, false messiah. Not anymore. In Galatians 1 verse 15, he writes about what changed in these terms. I quote, God was pleased to reveal his son in me. That's whom Jesus of Nazareth was now. God's son. Both in the sense of being the Messiah of Psalm 2 and the like, but even more than that. Later in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 verse 6, we have, if you excuse the pun, a more illuminating way of describing this encounter. Listen to this. I quote from Paul. God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has made his light shine in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. Paul saw not just the risen Jesus. He saw the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in his face, the face of the risen Messiah, Jesus. And this flipped what Paul lived for. Before this ascent of his life had been the law of God, the law of Moses, the Torah. Now it was Jesus, the Messiah. As he writes in Galatians chapter 2 from 19 to 20, and I'm using a slightly different translation 
from NIV at this point. I quote, Through the law, I died to the law, that I might live to God. Pause. Just think about it. That's an astounding statement. You're supposed to live to the law to live to God, but no. What does Paul mean? I think the next sentence may unpack it. I go on. I have been crucified with the Messiah. I am, however, alive. But it isn't me anymore. It's the Messiah who lives in me. And the life I do still live in the flesh, I live within the faithfulness of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's Galatians 2, 19 to 20. This Jesus, this Son of God, who loved him and gave himself for him, would now be at the heart of Paul's life. He would spend the rest of that life rethinking the scriptures in the light of this unexpected fulfilment in so many ways, working out, as it were, God's mega story now, he'd come to its climax. And not just the scriptures, but God himself. As a devout Jew, Paul would have daily prayed the Shema prayer of Deuteronomy, chapter 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. As we read in 1 Corinthians, chapter 8, verse 6, the confession of Jewish monotheism now incorporates the Messiah and Lord Jesus. I quote, For us, Paul writes, there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and for whom we live. And there is one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came, and through whom we live. That's the revolution, the first of the revolutions, brought about by the revelation of Son of God in Paul. The second is about the people of God, their nature and identity. On the road to Damascus, Paul discovered that in his zeal for God, he'd actually been a persecutor of what he would now call the church, literally, assembly of God. The Jesus believers were not a blasphemous threat to the purity and integrity of Israel. They were the assembly of God, the true heart of God's people. From that time on, Paul was seized by the truth that the identity of the true people of God, the righteous, as opposed to the sinners, was not based on observance of the Torah, the works of the law, but by faith in the Messiah, Jesus. It was a revolutionary revelation. It meant that Gentiles, once filthy idolaters, could, in the Messiah of Israel, fully share in Israel's inheritance as Gentiles. In Ephesians chapter 3, verse 6, Paul describes this as a mystery or a, or a secret that's been once hidden but now revealed as he puts it to God's holy apostles and prophets through the Spirit. That through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members of the one body, sharers in the promise through Jesus Christ. You may think this is no big deal. Let me tell you, it's a big deal. I'm a Gentile. You may be Gentile. But we can be included as Gentiles in God's mega story. It's faith in Jesus that makes you belong.
That was the second area of revolutionary change about the people of God. And the third was about the mission to all. It's fundamental to the rest of Paul's life that God had commissioned him as the apostle to the Gentiles. In Galatians chapter 1, verse 15 and 16, he describes it this way. But God, who set me apart from my mother's womb and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me that I might preach him among the Gentiles. Of all people, God had chosen and appointed this man, this man of zeal, to be the apostle to the Gentiles. Yes, but without a hint of his previous violence. For Paul was now resolved to know nothing amongst those he went to except Jesus, the Messiah, and him crucified. That made all the difference. The cross would now mark Paul's whole demeanour and approach. Now, he lost none of his zeal, but it was now a cross-shaped zeal. In this, Paul took on his new commission of being a light to the Gentiles with the same energy he'd shown in seeking to protect Israel from the influence of the Gentiles. He may have been, he puts in his own words, the least of the apostles because I persecuted the church of God. But, as he goes on to say, God's grace to him was not without effect. Now he writes, I worked harder than all the others. Yet not I, but the grace of God that's in me. That's 1 Corinthians 15, verses 8 through 10. Indeed he did. We don't have time to do more than just touch on the remarkable life and ministry that followed. Paul tells us that after three years away, he encountered, after he encountered Jesus, rather, he went to Jerusalem for the first time now to meet only Peter and James, the brother of Jesus. He then spent some ten years in the north, in the regions of Syria and Cilicia. We don't know much what happened in this ten years silent time because Acts doesn't mention it. Acts does pick up the story around the year 46 when Paul was invited back to help look after a growing community of mostly Gentile Jesus believers in the important city of Antioch in Syria, where they were first called Christians, by the way. The next 15 chapters of Acts recount the next 26 years of the remarkable ministry of Paul, three major journeys he takes to proclaim Jesus as Lord and Messiah and establish mature Jesus-believing communities right throughout the lands that are now Turkey and Greece. Acts ends with Paul in Rome under house arrest, awaiting trial before the emperor and, you guessed it, using the time to proclaim the gospel of the risen Jesus. What happened after that, we don't really know. In his letter to the Romans, Paul did express a desire to go to west, further west to Spain, the end of the known world. There's a hint that he might have made it. Writing in the year 95, Clement a bishop of the Church of Rome, in a letter to the Church of Corinth, who was still ratty, by the way, reminds them of their beloved apostle. This is the last we hear of Paul, I quote, after he'd been seven times in chains and been driven into exile, 
had been stoned, he preached in the East and in the West. He won genuine glory for the faith, having taught righteousness to the whole world and having reached the farthest limits of the West. Finally, when he had given his testimony before the rulers, he thus departed from the world and went to the holy place, having become an outstanding example of patient endurance. It's believed that Paul, St Paul lost his life in Rome around the year 62 in the terrible pogrom against the cult of Christians instituted by Emperor Nero. So that is our eighth stop in God's mega story. Though strictly, strictly speaking, it's not a stop at all because it's not, not like all the others, a key moment when God is doing something new like with Abraham or Moses or David <coughs> or the exile. Rather, this stop brings further fresh and powerful insights into the great and climatic stop, Jesus Christ, in God's mega story. And it is the supreme example of the risen Lord Jesus Christ commissioning a universal mission to all peoples, which continues this very day. The take-homes for us, two brief points. One, we may not have seen the risen Jesus, nor called to be an apostle to the nations. But there's much in Paul we can imitate, much. His passion for the risen Lord Jesus and his seeking of the good of others that they may be saved is a model for each of us, whatever our gifts and situation. (coughs) But important as that is, it's not enough. As well as looking at Paul, we need to look along Paul. Let me explain what I mean. In an essay called Meditation on a Toolshed, English writer and thinker C.S. Lewis describes the very different experience of looking at and looking on. Imagine a beam of light in a, in a shed. You see a crack. You see the beam of light, you see the specks of dust floating in it. That's what you're looking at. But move so you look along the beam, and what happens? You don't see the shed or the beam. You see the world outside, all its brilliance, the sun and the, the trees. In this sermon so far, we've really been looking at St. Paul. That's impressive. But what if you would look along him? What would you see? Not Paul any longer, but the glorious Lord Jesus Christ, crucified and risen, calling Son of God, calling from the obedience of faith from all peoples. You would see a new reality, a new humanity. The people of God, neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, nor even male and female, but all one in Christ Jesus. We would see, in other words, God's mega story coming to its glorious fulfilment.